I'm uh, Punchy. I'm one of the ministers here at Menai Anglican Church. And uh, we have a guest with us tonight who's going to help out with this sermon. So would you please make her welcome, Britt. <laughs> All right. Well, Britt, a lot of people know you. But for those maybe who don't, do you want to tell us, you're a long-time member of this church, but this year you moved away. Where'd you go and why? I didn't get the mute one. I got halfway there. There's an on-off button. I got that far. All right, we're on. Um, yes, I moved to Melbourne, despite not liking coffee or cold weather, um, to take up a job at a really great missional church down there called City on a Hill. Um, and I took a job as Assistant Women's Ministry Director because I'm very passionate about women's ministry and I was excited to go and take on that role. Cool. And you've been there about nine months, almost. Seven, yeah. Seven. Do you want to tell us how's, how's it been going? Yeah. Kind of hard to sum up. How do you sum up seven months in one word? Um, but I think, yeah, good is the, is the summary. I'd say hard, but good. Um, so I really love the church down there. Uh, we get to see people come, like hear the gospel for the first time. We get to see people put their faith in Jesus, and that's really exciting. Um, but hard also, it's been a period of a lot of change where I left a church here where um, I felt really known and I'd been here for a long time, so in some ways it was, it was safe and it was comfortable to go into a brand new role in a brand new city at a different type of church and, and into a very different, I'm working part-time as an occupational therapist, working in a burns unit there and just a very different role. Um, and so I feel like I don't feel nearly as self-sufficient as I normally like to, but that's been a really good, healthy thing because in me being not all capable and feeling that way, I'm reminded that God is all capable and he's just been more faithful and more kind to me than, yeah, than, cool. I, can, than I deserve. And it's just, we talk at City on Hill a lot about evidences of God's grace and I've just seen so many, much evidence of his grace in my life. Great, excellent. And when you were up in Sydney, you studied at Moore College and during your time there, you did an assignment on the topic of singleness. I did, yeah. That's right. And so we've asked Britt to come along uh, who, she's done a whole lot of work in this area, a bit of reading, a bit of thinking, and actually prepared a talk. That was the assignment, right? Mm. And so Britt and I have worked on this sermon together, and so the way it's going to work is I'm going to start, and then Britt's going to finish. So I'm going to pray, and we'll get started. Cool? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for church. Thanks for this time to gather together and to spend this time in your word. Thank you that your word is faithful and true, and you have spoken to us, we can know you, we can know ourselves. And we thank you for the power of your spirit. We ask that he would please work in our hearts now. Help us to know what you want us to know on this topic of singleness. Help us to be a church that is inclusive and understanding and empowering singles, caring for each other, supporting each other in whatever stage, whatever status we're in. So please speak to us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, to prepare today's talk, I watched the movie, How to Be Single. That's not all I did. I did read my Bible, but I watched the movie. I, I figured it's on the topic, and so let's hear what Hollywood has to say on singleness. And so if you haven't seen the movie, a bit of a spoiler alert, I might ruin a little bit, but not too bad, and I'm sorry, but you're also welcome because I've, I've heard the critics didn't really like it. It's a comedy uh, and I laughed, so it's not all bad, and it, it's about singleness, 
And in the movie, Rebel Wilson's character represents a big view in our culture today, particularly amongst young people and particularly young men, that being single is the best time of your life. Right? When you're single, you are free to do whatever you want to do, go wherever you want to go, be whatever you want to be. No commitments, no responsibilities. You can travel the world, see new things, try new experiences, hook up with different people, have heaps of sex, pursue pleasure, and embrace and express all of your desires. And in this approach to singleness, being in a relationship, and particularly being married, is always talked about in a really negative way. Right? When you get married, that's when the fun stops, the sex stops, you've got to settle down, do the right thing, the party's over, life is over. But as the movie unfolds, it kind of becomes more and more clear that this answer to that question, how to be single, is to not be single. Right? For this movie that is about being single, it kind of has this underlining message that as bad or as boring or as dysfunctional as your relationship was, it's better than being single, which is why the critics didn't like the movie. And maybe we're not really surprised with that kind of message because it's also the message of pretty much every romantic comedy. Single bad, relationship good. And shows like The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, Bachelorette, The Bachelor in Paradise, Married at First Sight, The Proposal, all of them reinforce that same view, that singleness is a problem we need to solve. So in our culture, we've got these two basic views. On the one hand, single, it's the time of your life. And then on the other hand, it's that time of your life where you're waiting to find the one so that life can begin. And in our churches, we must acknowledge that it's probably this second, more negative view that tends to be more prevalent. A greater emphasis on marriage results in it being viewed as the ideal, and young people growing up in church, marriage is presented often as the goal of life for the fulfilment of God's purposes for humanity to be fruitful and increase in number. And so whether intentionally or not, the result is a very low, unbiblical view of singleness and a very high, idolised view of marriage which is not good in the end for singles or marrieds, but particularly for singles, it can lead to big questions around identity. You know, well, who am I if I'm not now or, or potentially ever going to be a husband or wife or a mum or a dad? And it can lead to doubts about God's, God's goodness, His love, His plan for my life. What are you doing, God? And it can result in feelings of loneliness or feeling like you're stuck with plan B, like you're missing out, um, waiting for life to begin, which I'm sure we don't want that for anyone in this room here tonight. And so we need to talk about this, and we want to hear what the Bible, what God has to say on this topic. And as we chat afterwards over dinner or in our growth groups during the week, we need to listen to each other with sensitivity and empathy conscious that our experiences of singleness may be quite different. And so that means we need to be prepared to acknowledge each other's disappointments or frustrations or sadness. 
and do that in order toward, to move towards a more healthy, more hopeful, more biblical view of singleness. And I hope you can see that this is so important for all of us as a whole church family, because whether we're single or married, God has brought us together in community for His glory and for the flourishing of each person here, whether we're single or married. And so, as we heard last week, remember, we are a family, and in that way, we are to take responsibility for each person here in this family, whether we're single or married. So I'm glad we're talking about this, and the plan is I'm going to begin with some big picture ideas of what the Bible has to say on singleness, and then Britt is going to help us think further about how that might look practically for us. And so to begin, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 7, probably the key passage on singleness in the Bible, and pick it up at verse 27, where Paul says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I'd spare you of that. Now, it kind of feels like Paul's having a bad day when he wrote this. It's pretty negative, pretty down on marriage. Elsewhere in the Bible, Paul has this very high, exalted view of marriage. And now this, if you're unmarried, don't look for a spouse. I want to spare you that. But if you've married, you haven't sinned, but probably not the best idea, you know, you're going to face all these troubles, you're better off single. Is that what he's saying? Well, let's keep reading, verse 29. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. And so now we get a bit of context, what's going on in Paul's mind. These comments on singleness and marriage are in the context of a much bigger picture. In fact, Paul has here in view the entire storyline of the Bible. And he signals that with two key phrases there. At the start and the end, the time is short, and he says, for this world is passing away. At the end, the technical term for what Paul's doing here is biblical theology. He's giving us a biblical theology of marriage and singleness, which sounds complicated, but biblical theology is stepping back to look at the entire storyline of the Bible from beginning to end, and in this case, seeing where marriage and singleness fits into that. And so we're going to take a couple of minutes to do that now, beginning with marriage and then singleness. So first, how does marriage fit into the Bible storyline? Well, the Bible begins with a marriage and it ends with a marriage. We begin with the Bible in, in the Bible with the union between Adam and Eve in the garden, and then the Bible ends with the wedding celebration of Jesus and his bride, the church, at the feast in heaven. And from the beginning, as the story unfolds, God in the Old Testament is not just creator and not just lawgiver, but he is a husband to his people. And then when Jesus arrives in the New Testament, one of the first things he said about himself, himself is that he is the bridegroom. He is that divine husband, now come in the flesh. 
And then in chapter 5 of Ephesians, Paul's addressing wives and husbands, talking about how they're to relate to one another. We heard about this the other week. And then Paul quotes Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then out of nowhere, Paul says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Why? Because that uniting of a man and a woman, husband and wife, one flesh, is an earthly picture of the spiritual reality that is going on when someone puts their faith in Christ. They are united with Him, one in spirit. That's the picture. And then as the Bible reaches its climax, we have this brilliant wedding celebration. In Revelation 21, the the city comes down from heaven to earth as a bride dressed beautifully for her husband, Jesus Christ, the Lamb. And it is a vision of the wedding celebration at the end of all things, where God's people, the church, His bride, will be presented to Himself without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and pure and radiant, glorious. And finally, in that moment, be united with Him in heaven for all eternity. And so in the Bible, marriage is a wonderful gift, and it is an amazing picture of the gospel. But the very fact that it is a picture pointing to this ultimate reality tells us that it itself isn't ultimate. Which is why, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, those who are married should live as though they are not, because he has in view that ultimate wedding day in the future. The time is short, he says, this world is passing away, and so how we live today is in light of that future reality. Which means, if you are married, your marriage isn't supposed to complete you. It's supposed to point to the one who completes you. And your wedding day isn't the moment that you finally made it, but your wedding day is supposed to point to that wedding celebration of the Lamb at the end of all things when you will have finally made it. Now, what does all this mean for singleness? Because it kind of sounds now like marriage is the big deal in the Bible. Well, in a sense it is, but it's that marriage between Christ and the church that is the big deal in the Bible. And in 1 Corinthians 7... What Paul's saying is that whether you're single or married, we all live in light of that ultimate future, that reality at the end of all things. Jesus has come. The bridegroom has come. He has laid down his life for his bride. Whoever believes in him is united with him, one in spirit, guaranteed an inheritance, adopted as a son or daughter, given a room in the Father's house, their name written in the book of life, and a place at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And that is where all of our deepest longings for love and acceptance and peace and joy and security will all be satisfied on that day. And if we begin to live each day now in light of that glorious future, it changes everything for us. And it equalises singleness and marriage. Because whether you're single or married, we are all to live in light of that glorious future. Which is why Paul says, are you married? Okay, stay married and live for that future. Are you single? Okay, stay single 
and live for that future. We are to live for that future. And actually, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, he takes it a step further, elevating singleness over marriage because it can, be, it can mean for someone a greater capacity to live for that future and avoid some of the difficulties of marriage. And similarly, in Matthew 19, Jesus commends those who choose to be single for the sake of the kingdom. And we mustn't forget, Jesus Christ himself was single. Right? We often overlook that fact that Jesus, the perfect human being, didn't feel the need to get married in order to exhibit perfect humanity. And so in the Bible and from Jesus himself, we have this very positive view of singleness. And so if you are single, in the Bible, it, we see that it's, it's not that a spouse is supposed to complete you, as our culture might say, but in the Bible, you are complete in Jesus. And if you are single and living for a future wedding day, make it that wedding celebration of the Lamb. That is the one where we all will be united with Jesus and experience ultimate family, ultimate love and acceptance. And whilst marriage now is supposed to point to Jesus and our union with Him, well, singleness now can be a really positive and powerful declaration that I am content as I am because my union with Jesus is enough for me. Because singleness, it's not saying I don't long for a spouse or I don't have sexual desires. It's being able to say, I do have longings, I do have desires, and as much as I like to be able to express those longings and enjoy those desires, I know that they point to a deeper longing, a greater desire that cannot and will not be completely satisfied until I enter into that ultimate wedding at the end of all things where I get to experience joy and peace and love and intimacy and pleasure forevermore in Jesus. And until that day, whether I remain single or if my circumstances change, I am content because Jesus is enough for me and I'm going to live for him and I'm going to live for that future reality. All right, that's my bit, bit of a whirlwind tour of what the Bible has to say on singleness. And so I'm going to invite Britt up now to give us some time to process all that and think about how, how that might look practically. I just want to start by saying again how grateful I am to be here. It really is a joy and a privilege to be back and to get to speak to you tonight. And as Punch said, I'm here to help us unpack a little bit more this topic of singleness. I am currently single and over the past few years I have spent a fair bit of time thinking about it and thinking about what the Bible tells us about singleness. Punch started by referencing the movie How to Be Single. He watched it for research. I just watched it for enjoyment, and confession, I didn't hate it, because I was kind of intrigued to see how Hollywood was going to deal with this question that I myself have been asking for a while. How do we single? How do we do it well? Last year, I went to a newly created conference called Single Minded, a conference about singleness for everyone. You know, usually a new conference takes a couple of years, maybe two or three years, to get enough numbers to even break even. Yet this conference completely sold out and really fast. 
The response to the conference in some way was really surprising for the people that organized it, but I think in many ways it wasn't. Because I think there's a lot of us in church who want to talk about singleness. Because our churches are full of single people. Some willingly, some unwillingly. Some have never been married, some never will be married. Some are same-sex attracted, some are divorced, some are widowed. And for many, and I know this for myself, being single can really affect our view of God and affect our view of ourselves. So there is this need, a deep need as a whole church body that we need to be talking about singleness as much as we are talking about marriage. So Punchy has very helpfully laid out for us what the Bible teaches about singleness. And I love biblical theology and I love hearing it because it's good. And I would like to lay out some things that I have learnt about singleness and some things that I think we as single people but also as a whole church just really need to hear. And I hope that it will be slightly more helpful than a Rebel Wilson movie. (laughs) I want to start, though, with a short disclaimer and just say that I only know my experience of being single and to some extent the experience of those close to me. And I appreciate that maybe my experience is very different to yours. There is probably going to be differences in our age or in our circumstance and maybe a difference in how we feel about being single. And I want you to know that I don't stand here as someone who thinks they are the fount of all knowledge on the topic or the definitive voice about it. I just humbly stand here as someone trying to encourage us that God's way is good. That if we are obedient to him, we are not going to miss out. And to try and be faithful to him in every area of our life. So then, how to be single. Number one, first and foremost, we need to have good theology. And I think this is a rule for all of us, just for life in general. As Christians, we are called to let God's word be the first and the loudest voice. Part of having Jesus as our Lord is trusting that his word and his way is right. More than culture and more than church tradition. And I think this one is so important when it comes to singleness because as Punchy said, church and culture have not really got it right. You know, culture says that singleness, it isn't good. If you listen to Disney and Jane Austen and The Bachelor, it says that singleness is bad. And watch church tradition in evangelical circles, has often suggested is that marriage is the ultimate goal of the Christian life. And that isn't right either. What culture and the church have provided us with is this really elevated view of marriage and this really low view of singleness. And church, I want you to know tonight that that's just not biblical. And so I think a big part of doing singleness well is undoing the way that we think and starting to view singleness in the way that the Bible views it. We need to have a good theology of marriage and of singleness. And according to the Bible, and hear this loudly and hear this clearly, singleness is not a problem to be solved. As Punchy explained, the Bible actually holds this really even-handed view. It says marriage is good. It says singleness is good. And most importantly, it says Jesus is ultimate. Do you know I was in my late 20s before anyone taught me that? That anyone showed me from the Bible that singleness is good? I lived more than 25 years 
in church before someone reassured me that if I am single, I'm okay. And if I stay single, I will still be okay. I mean, I probably should have figured this out on my own a little bit earlier because Jesus is single and I feel like it's a pretty safe bet that if Jesus is something, then it's okay to be that something. But the Bible, it really clearly teaches that singleness is good. And if we go back to 1 Corinthians 7, the passage that Punchy was talking about, you see that really clearly in verses 27 and 28. So if you have your Bibles, you can have a look there. 27 and 28. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you of this. So here Paul is saying that singleness is good. And it's good in terms of what it spares us. And as Punch said, Paul isn't suggesting that it's wrong to get married. But he's making it clear that there is a benefit in remaining single because it spares us from this worldly trouble. Now, Paul, he's not anti-romance, but he's also just being a realist. You know, he's being a little bit more Jane Eyre than Jane Austen. And we, we here, we need to be realists too. Marriage, like singleness, has its ups and downs. And the downs in marriage, they're really significant. And we don't often acknowledge this. What we usually do is we take the best moments of marriage and then we compare them with the worst moments of singleness. And I do this. I do this all the time. I compare the joy of my friend on her wedding day with the sadness that I feel watching that couple's dance from the singles table. I go and I compare that lovely Instagram photo of my friend on her holiday with her husband and her children, and I compare that with those intense moments of aloneness that I feel, sobbing quietly on the kitchen floor in a ball of self-pity. And in doing these comparisons that we do all the time, we set up the belief that marriage is the indisputably better option, that singleness, it can't possibly be good. And we also convince ourselves that marriage, it must be the cure to the problems faced in the single life. It must be the cure to that loneliness that I feel on the kitchen floor. But the truth is, marriage, it's not the cure because it brings its own challenges and its own problems which can actually be far more agonizing than the trials of singleness. I have known married people who are very lonely. I have had friends who have been utterly crushed by the betrayal and the rejection of a spouse. I have seen the deep pain and the messiness that divorce brings. I've had friends and family who've struggled with miscarriages and infertility, so let's not fall into the trap of thinking that it's only single people that know grief and loneliness, when the reality is that we all do. And as Paul is reminding us, singleness can spare us from some really deep hurt. And I just want to say now, after the service, we're going to have some people in lanyards, and they're here, and they're available to listen to you and to pray with you, because I know that a lot of us here carry hurt. And the beauty is that we get to carry that together and we get to pray with each other. 
Moving on, though, Paul also tells us that singleness is good in terms of how it frees us. So if we have a look at verses 32 to 35, he says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs and how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried man, an unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm not saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you might live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So Paul is outlining here that it's good to be free from concerns as the freedom allows us to have a more undivided devotion to God. And again, I think Paul here is just being a realist. Paul is pointing out the truth that married people have more worldly concerns that are going to divert their attention as they are very rightfully concerned with serving their spouse or their children. And hear me clearly, what I'm saying here is not that meaningful ministry can only be done by single people or that single people are going to be more faithful. But Paul is pointing out that the single person is free to serve God in a much less complicated way. And I think we saw that come through really clearly on the video that played earlier in the service. I think we know it to be true. Without a spouse or children, a single person usually has a greater capacity for ministry and for friendships. As Christians, we're called to live thinking about how that we can best love God and how we can best love others. And singleness is good in that it provides us opportunities to love and serve God and others well. And that's a joy. That is a good thing. It doesn't mean that if you're single, then you are only good for ministry. But we should appreciate that in ministry and in life, single people get to say, I'll be there in a way that others can't. When I'm thinking about singleness and marriage, I find it helpful to remind myself that being single has allowed me to experience things that have been really, really good. I've been able to develop really solid friendships. I've been able to do Bible college. When my sister had her son, it was really hard for her and I got to be available. I was there to help her out and to be a huge part of their lives and I'm so grateful for that. And I got to pick up and I got to move to Melbourne for a job that I really, really love and a ministry that I really, really love. So let's not forget that, that the single life provides us with many good things. It's so often portrayed as sad and pitiable and empty, when actually within it, it has lots of freedom and lots of opportunity for good things. And if we can grasp this, if we remember this, It helps us to make much better sense of why singleness would then be referred to as a gift. If you go back to um, verse 7 of the chapter that we're in, so chapter 7, verse 7, it says, back over the page, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, this verse has caused a lot of confusion. Many interpret the gift to be a kind of superpower allowing one to cope with singleness. Like the extraordinary ability to fly, the gift of singleness is the extraordinary ability to be single and to thrive. And the gift is only thought to be had by people who are completely happy being single and who have no desire for sex or for marriage or for family. 
Understandably then, most single people feel like they probably don't have this gift. Or they see the gift like that really ugly sweater that you get and you wish that you could return. I don't think this view of gift, though, is correct at all, for lots of reasons. But the main one being here that the underlying assumption of that view is that singleness must actually really suck if a person has to have a special gift in order to flourish in the single life. And that doesn't make any sense in light of the verses that we just looked at. Instead, great theologian John Stott and many others argue that a correct explanation of this gift that Paul speaks of, speaks of is a gift of God's grace that refers to the situation that you are currently in. The gift is the current status. Therefore, if you're single, you have the gift of singleness. If you're married, you have the gift of marriage. And both situations can equally be called gifts because both are understand, understood to be good. So that's my first observation, and don't worry, that's the longest one, on how to be single. We need to start with good theology around singleness. We need to know that marriage is good, but we need to know and we need to remember that singleness is also good. My second observation for doing singleness well, and again, this is going to apply to all of us, is that we need to know who we are. As we said before, culture has convinced us that single adults are in some way deficient. Just think of the stereotype of, oh, the crazy cat lady. Culture says that if you're single, then you just aren't as good or, or desirable enough to snag a spouse or keep a spouse. And I think lots of us, maybe not consciously, fall into that way of thinking. It is the message that underlines that very well-meaning but quite hurtful question, how are they still single? I know that it's often said, meant as a compliment, but it's, it's not. Because what it's saying is that marriage is the expected outcome for those who are a certain level of worthy. You know, if someone has a great personality or a charming manner or they seem to have a well-functioning life or if they're smart or attractive, then surely, surely they would be in a relationship. Because what they're saying then is relationships are for the worthy. But as we've just said, singleness is a good gift given by God, not the option that's just left for the unworthy. So if you've never been married, don't believe it's because you haven't reached a certain level of good or worthy, or because you haven't yet reached a certain level of godly, godliness or contentedness. If you're single, and please hear this loud and clear, don't believe the lie that you are broken, that you are incomplete, or that you are somehow second class. Our identity is not in our marital status. Instead, for all of us here, our identity is in who God says that we are. And who does he say that we are? We are in Christ. The term in Christ, or some variation of that, like in him, is used in Paul's letters in the New Testament about 216 times. That is a heck of a lot more times than marital status is referenced, which makes me confident that it is a heck of a lot more important than your marital status. For all of us, the Bible contains this call not to determine who I am by things of this world like relationships, but to know that our identity is found in Jesus, who is the great I am. Our sense of value and our sense of worth is not found in being a husband or a wife or a parent, 
but it's found in being united to Christ. In Christ, who is the great, immeasurable I am, we are all completely acceptable, extremely valuable, totally forgiven. And in Christ, we are all eternally loved. Now, I know words like that, words to the effect of Jesus is enough, that maybe sometimes we know that they are true, but it's still really hard to hear. Because let's be real, at times for all of us, we can know on a head level that Jesus is sufficient, but it just doesn't feel like that on a heart level. And for single people, we might know on a head level that singleness is good, but we still just find it really hard. And trust me, I get that. Part of me feels like a slight imposter being up here because it sounds like I've got this singleness sorted when I don't. Sometimes, like all of us here, I struggle in life and I find things really hard. And I suspect for those of you who were married and now aren't, you probably feel this in a way that I can't even imagine. So my third observation for us on how to be single is that we need to find the balance. Since the Bible holds both singleness and marriage as good, God-given situations, we need to live in a way that honors this. And practically, what this means is balancing a desire for marriage, which is a good thing, with the contentedness in singleness, which is also a good thing. If you've been married and are now not, it's okay to feel that loss. And for all of us who are single and who are single and we want to get married and we want to have children, that's okay to want those things and to pray for those things because the Bible tells us that they are good things. It's okay to grieve over not experiencing the blessing that is marriage or children. Because as someone wisely once told me, grief and discontent are not the same thing. However, in finding the balance, we must be careful that we don't let this desire for marriage or for children turn into this hankering, debilitating, life-defining pain. We don't want to be Christians who are disillusioned and who are bitter and just can't get past our single status. And I think we do this when we create for ourselves an idol in marriage, when we want marriage more than we want anything else in the world. And I think we often do this because we convince ourselves that marriage is a place where we're going to find true happiness and true completeness. So when you are feeling the ache of being single, ask yourself, am I grieving the absence of a good, of a good thing? Or am I grieving because I've made marriage the most important thing? As I mentioned in the interview with Punchy, I moved to Melbourne about seven, eight months ago. And when I first arrived, I lived with my good friends, Emma and Joel Deacon, who some of you probably know because they came here. And I lived with their three children. And let me tell you, it was an eye-opening experience. I don't think I realized how much I had idolized the idea of marriage and children until I saw it up close and realized it was really different to what I'd imagined. The reality is it's not all that I had built it up to be. Em and Joel are great. I love them. They have a good and godly marriage and they have great children. 
but it's still really hard. Life is not glamorous. Life is not easy. They're not sitting there being like, we are so complete and content. They are in Jesus, but not in family life because it still just comes with its challenges. It means a whole lot of personal sacrifice and of choosing love and patience and forgiveness on a very, very regular basis. And again, please don't hear me. I'm not saying, oh, therefore marriage is bad. I just think we need to remember that marriage might not be all that we think that it is, the cure to the struggles of the single life. Before I finish, I'll say this though. Since life is hard for marrieds and singles, we need to do life together. One of God's greatest gifts to us is this gift of community that we're experiencing right now. We are in this together. We are picking one another up. We are spurring one another on. And I think one thing we've lost when we overemphasize sex and romantic love and marriage is that we've lost the, the importance and the beauty of great friendship and great community. A sense of intimacy is not only found in sex. A sense of support and belonging is not only found in a romantic partner. And family is the church, not just the biological family. Recently, Emma and Joel's eldest son, Elijah, he wrote me a letter, and I have it here. What a little prop. And he wrote this to me, and it says, To Brit, from Eli, and inside it says, Dear Brit, I love you being in my family when you are in Melbourne. You make me laugh. <laughs> From Eli. And then he drew a picture of my face. <laughs> and I cried when I read this. And mainly because I am an easy weeper. But I thought it was really beautiful. And I was really encouraged by it. Because it shows me what Christian community should be. Family is not just biological. The Bible tells us that we are each other's family. We're each other's brothers and sisters. And that is important and that is significant. We are a family and so we need to do life together and not in a way that singles over there and marrieds over there and families over there, but we're doing it together. And so church, let's work hard at being a church that does that, that does life all together because we need each other. And I can think of lots of examples how I have seen this here in action. One that came to mind really quickly was when I was coordinating NEON, we had on team the Hatfields. And they would be there in that kitchen every Friday night chatting to whoever would come in. And they loved our youth team and they prayed for us and they were just our friends. And it was so beautiful to have that diversity in the team of marrieds and singles, difference, age difference in situation but just loving each other and doing ministry together. There are lots of examples of how we are doing it well, but I also think that we could do it better. So let's put our effort into being a community. Let's put our effort into post-church community. When you come on a Saturday night, stick around. Talk to people. And don't just talk to people who are in the sta same stage as you, but talk to the whole congregation. So if, if you're an older Christian here, Go and chat to the younger ones. Maybe mentor one of our younger people here. Get involved in their life. You have so much wisdom to share. And to the younger, maybe a bit more sprightly ones here, how can you maybe be helping out an older brother or sister? 
particularly maybe the widows in our congregation or our older single adults, how can you be helping them out? And married, if you are married, welcome single people into your life and into your home. Have them over for dinner. You don't even have to invite another single person. It can just be the three of you. It will be okay. (laughs) And single people, don't just hang out with each other. Widen your circle. Make friends with married people. Get involved in their children's life. Because can I tell you from my letter, it's really great. And I love being part of the Deacon Kids' life. It's been a real joy. Think about how all of us can be using our time, our capacity, our situation well to be loving one another as family. I'll finish with this final thought. And it's echoing Punchy's final thought because I think it's the most important thing that we need to remember in all of this. For all of us, whether we are never married or married or divorced or widowed, There is going to be for us in life grief and heartache and disappointment. For all of us, relationships, even the very best relationships, are not going to deliver all that we want them to. And that's okay. As Christians, we can sit with that because we know that this life was never going to deliver all that we wanted it to. It was never going to deliver all that we longed for because we know that no temporary, worldly thing can completely satisfy And as Christians, we live in a great hope that there is so much better to come beyond this life. So for all of us here, let us not cling to relationships or marriage or anything else like our life and our value depends on that thing. Let's put our hope in the future. Let's put our hope in Jesus and when he returns and we will experience the ultimate wedding and the ultimate family. For as Punch said, on that day, all of those deepest desires that we have for closure, for love, for acceptance, for joy, all of those desires will be completely satisfied. And I think if we can live like that, truly satisfied in Jesus alone, with our hope only in him, we are going to be loudly and powerfully declaring to our world that Jesus really is better than anything else. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truths that it reminds us of. Thank you that you give us marriage and marriage is good. Thank you that you give us family and family is good. Thank you that you give us singleness and singleness is good. Father, help us all to remember that no matter what our circumstance, that you are a God that gives good gifts, that we can trust you, that you are for us and that in you we are going to have life and have it to the full. And in those moments of sadness, Lord, I pray, or disappointment, I just pray that you would remind us that in Jesus we have all that we need. In Jesus we have a love that is wider and higher and deeper than we can even comprehend. May we focus on that always for your glory. Amen.